Good evening. If I wait for people to stop arriving, I think the lecture time will be half over. So uh, my name is Simon Levin. I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the University Public Lecture Committee. It's a great uh, pleasure tonight to introduce Percy Diaconis of Stanford University. Percy is both a mathematician and a magician. Gina Collada called him a prestigitator of digits, uh, which is a wonderful turn of phrase. He is a professor of statistics and mathematics at Stanford, member of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, recipient of numerous other honors. He's worked on a deep range of, uh, a wide range of deep mathematical problems, including things like factorization by primes and Fourier transforms on finite groups. But he's also worked on a lot of applied problems, such as clinical trials, the statistics of vision, ESP research, cognitive illusions, and he's worked on magic. He's worked on writing scripts for uh, and tricks for magician friends or for his own magical work. Uh, he's written papers on mag magical thinking and the analysis of scientific data, on the mathematics of perfect shuffles, and a book on mathematical magic that he is working on. Today's topic is a particularly fascinating one on coincidences, on which he's also working on a book with Frederick Mosteller. So it's a great pleasure, without further ado, for me to introduce tonight's speaker, Percy Diaconis. Thank you, Simon, and thanks to all of you for coming out on a dark and actually quite beautiful evening. Uh, let's see if we can make this thing help us. Um, this is a talk about coincidences, and uh, it's joint work with my friend and colleague, Fred Mosteller. And, well, let's just think. To, I mean, coincidences do sort of hit all of us. Uh, they can affect where we live and with whom and what we work at. Often truly important things in our lives seem determined not by anything we can plan out, but by the, the force of, of coincidences. And just to get started, let me, let me put up a, a working definition. For a while, at any rate, let's define a coincidence as a set of concurrent events perceived as surprising and in some way meaningfully related, but with no apparent causal connection. So two people who haven't seen each other for years meet far from a place where they know each other. Now, if you, if you look, you'll notice that um, there are a lot of weasel words in that <laughs> definition. Um, uh, perceived as surprising and meaningfully related and no apparent causal connection. And I'll, I'll try to uh, slice that up a little bit as we, as we go on. Um, just so that you know what's coming, here's, uh, here's an outline. I'll talk a little bit about Jung, uh, one of the great popularizers and discussors of 
coincidences. And then I'll talk to you about some tools that I found useful in thinking critically about some of the stories that I encounter or that people tell me. Um, then I'll tell you some stories, because that's actually usually the main, the main thing. Um, and finally, I'll try to make some sense out of what I've told you about and draw some conclusions. So that's, that's where I'm headed. Um, just to get started, so Jung, famous psychotherapist and writer about many things, um, had a lifelong fascination with coincidences and with the paranormal in general. He wrote his thesis about them, and he returned to them again and again and again. He wrote a famous foreword to the I Ching, and um, along the way he wrote a book which was called Synchronicity, with the subtitle, An A-Causal Connecting Principle. And some of you may know that Synchronicity is the name of a police album, and uh, I listened to that, I'd say, ten times, trying to get a good line for this talk. And uh, I, I, never, I never quite succeeded. Uh, Sting is great, but um, it didn't work for me. Um, anyway, Jung's book has a real connection to Princeton. Uh, Princeton publishes Jung's collected works, as you may know, Princeton University Press. And this is their best-selling book of all time. Uh, I mean, this single book is their best-selling book of all time. Uh, it, it somehow captures people. Let me tell you a little bit about Jung's argument, and you can buy a copy in the bookstore. Uh, Jung's argument goes this way. Uh, first of all, weird things happen. And sort of by definition, he says, well, but weird things happen. There was no apparent causal reason for them to happen. And there are too many of them, Jung says, to attribute to, uh, to chance. And so he postulated a hidden synchronous force uh, at the same level or at the same impact as, as various other causal forces and tried to develop that theme. Uh, and that was this force that he called synchronicity. And um, the beginning of the book is a collection of, of stories, basically, sort of informal evidence. And I'll come back to that and try to talk to you about some of those stories more carefully in a second. The second part of the book, um, Jung was fascinated, this was in the 40s, by what he called the new physics. Um, relativity theory and quantum mechanics and ESP, which Jung classified as having been established beyond doubt by uh, uh, Joseph Ryan and his colleagues, made people think that the way the causal mechanisms that we, we understood had broken down and that there was a whole new world for us. And, and somehow he builds up that and tries to explain that. Now, unfortunately, Jung is as much of a physicist as I am, and, and his, ex, you know, his level of discussion of things like relativity is, you know, everything is relative. And, 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 you know, quantum mechanics and uncertainty, it's that if you have something that's going on and you poke it with a stick, that changes it. Well, it's true, but somehow the, the magic of quantum mechanics has a force beyond that. So I'm afraid, and I'm afraid that, uh, despite all my years of looking, um, I have yet to see a repeatable experiment in parapsychology and, and 
So for me, it's certainly not an established part of science, and I'll, I'll come back to that too. So I'd like to downplay the new physics for a while uh, and come back for a moment to Jung's informal evidence. And just for example, rather than my making it up, here's the first example that he uses in his book. Okay? Um, so there are, however, he writes, incidents whose chancefulness seems open to doubt. To mention but one example out of many, I noted the following on April 1st, 1949. Today is Friday. We have fish for lunch. Somebody happens to mention the custom of making an April fish of someone. In Europe, instead of April fools, you stick a paper fish on somebody's back and make an April fish out of them. Um, that same morning, I made a note of an inscription which read, A homo totus medius Pisces abimo. My Latin is lousy, but Pisces is fish. Uh, and in the afternoon, a former patient of mine, whom I had not seen for months, showed me some extremely impressive pictures of fish which she had painted in the meantime. In the evening, I was shown a piece of embroidery with fish-like sea monsters in it. On the morning of April 2nd, another patient, whom I had not seen for many years, told me a dream in which she stood on the shore of a lake and saw a large fish that swam straight toward her and landed at her feet. I was at this time engaged on a study of the fish symbol in history. I should practice making that. Um, put little legs on it. Right? Um, sorry. I was at this time engaged on a study of the fish symbol in history. Only one of the persons mentioned here knew anything about it. So Jung realizes in his further discussion that this isn't, um, this isn't you know, the, the, the new cure for some rare disease. That is, these are, but these are the kinds of coincidences that make you feel maybe something funny is going on. That is, for him, the appearance of something he was thinking about, namely this image, um, six times within a 24-hour period, seems spooky. And, and he, he, he develops that in a, in, in, in a way. And I do think that many of the examples that people who record coincidences, and there have been books filled with people recording coincidences, have this ring. It's not that, you know, the, the dome opens up and Christ appears or anything like that. It's something, something really, you know, on, on this order makes us think there's some, something weird going on. Um, I want to think critically for a second about Jung's example. Okay, um, that is, how would we think whether this was a strange occurrence or not? This fish appearing six times. Well, suppose we had something we were interested in, a hobby or something we were working on or thinking about that wasn't so common, but it's not infinitely uncommon. For example, the appearance of, you know, the fish as a symbol or as an idea. And I want to suppose that that occurs at some rate, and I'll say about once a day, which seems roughly right for fish, I don't know, uh, uh, something like that. And now, mathematicians have a notion of something occurring at rate, say, once a day, but otherwise at random, which is called the Poisson process. And let me try to explain that. So, first of all, it's a very standard mathematical model, and it seems to be... For example, the way that radioactivity decays. Radioactivity decays, the way a Geiger counter reads things, there's a certain fixed rate of decay, 
So events click in about once a minute or once a microsecond or whatever their rate is, but otherwise they're random. And what that means is that if you take a chunk, and if I tell you there were five events that occurred in that chunk, those five points are equally likely to be any, anywhere. So there's a standard notion of things occurring at a certain rate, but otherwise being random. And I can translate this question of is this a spooky event into the following math question, namely, consider a Poisson process which has rate one, as in once a day. Take a window of length 24 hours, one day, and slide it along for some period of time. I'll take six months, and uh, you can pick your own. We can answer the question. Um, what's the chance that you get something as surprising as what was observed, namely, what's the chance that you get six blips in that window sometime during a 24-hour period? Now, the reason I'm sliding it along, you'll remember Jung had one thing happen in the evening and the next thing happen the next morning. Um, well, that computation is, is actually not for children. Uh, it's how we make a living doing computations like that. Uh, but meanwhile, we can do them. And the answer is, it's not so surprising. Uh, the chance of six or more events in a 24-hour window is about 22%, a little, around one in four. So it, it really isn't surprising uh, that, 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 this, that this occurred. The actual question is, what made Jung surprised? And, and I'll come back to that. Um, suffice to say that Fred Mosteller and I went through Jung's initial examples, the informal ones that he reported, um, with this kind of eye, that is a sort of skeptical mathematical eye, and we tried to make little simple back-of-the-envelope models and try to answer the question, should we be shocked by these events? And all of them had about this shock value. So. Um, that, that, isn't, that isn't somehow what's, what's driving the surprise factor. Um, I said I was going to say something about Freud, and um, Freud also wrote voluminously about the occult uh, and, and weird uh, and curious events. One of my favorite stories uh, of his is he was in a small town in Spain, and he came to a corner and he found some women waving at him, and he said there was no mistaking their uh, occupation or their interest in me. And um, he fled from the spot and was wandering around the small town again. And he found himself back at the corner where the women were. And he, this time he said he fled even more rapidly, but it wandered around. And he said the third time it happened, they were sure he was back for business. And he fled to his hotel room. And he asked himself, was there some hidden force driving me back to the action? <laughs> or could it have been just that if you wander around in a small grid, uh, the chance that you come back to a given point in a couple of hours is, is it's pretty certain. And it's very interesting to see him wrestling with this. He doesn't have the mathematical tools to deal with it. But you can do these kinds of back-of-the-envelope calculations and conclude, as he did, that actually there's a reasonable chance that chance caused it, and it wasn't his subconscious driving him. Uh, um, but, but Freud and Jung are both interesting to read, and I'll come back to the issue, which is actually crucial in this matter, about the a psychological well, illumination of, of our surprise at coincidences. What I want to do for a minute 
is to tell you uh, a little bit about the most successful tool I know for dealing with off-the-street problems. So let me explain. Um, so I've been working on this stuff for 10 or 15 years, maybe longer, and, and my friend Gina Collada did a little piece in the New York Times about professors studying coincidences. And I promise you, if you get your name on the front page of the New York Times as someone who studies coincidences, you get a lot of funny mail. <laughs> so I got a lot of funny mail, and so, you know, some of it makes you think, and this is one of the tools which I found most often helped me. And I want to start at the very beginning, and I'll build it up to something which is actually quite, quite potent. Um, I want to start with what I call the vanilla-flavored birthday problem. Um, that problem goes this way. Um, how many people do you need to have in a room or in a group to have even odds that two of them have the same birthday? And we often use this in teaching probability to students and try it out. And people who aren't tutored in probability calculations, when they hear birthday, they say, well, that's 1 in 365, right? something about 365. And 2, well, maybe half of 365, you know, 180, 190, something like that. And um, most people, even I, even after all these years, I'm surprised to find that the answer is a tiny number. In fact, it's even odds that if you have 23 people in a group, so with the first two rows here, or maybe the first three, okay, uh, it's even odds that two of you have the same birthday. And let me say, try to take a little bit of the surprise out of it for you. As I said, many people think that the answer is 183. Now, some people, when they hear this problem, honestly say, well, wait, I didn't understand it. I thought you meant, how many people do I have to have in a group until I have even odds of having somebody have my birthday? That's another problem, right? And the answer is, actually, 253. It's more than 365 over 2. And the reason is because there are these people lined up, and a lot of them have the same birthday because of the birthday problem. And so you don't have a fresh supply of birthdays. If, in fact, you say, how many people with all different birthdays do I have to have lined up in a row to have even odds that somebody matches me? The answer to that question is 365 over 2. Um, let me explain where the 23 comes from as best I can um, here. Um, Take these 23 people or so. Okay. I asked, what's the odds that two of them have the same birthday? So that could mean you two or you and you or any of the two people, right? So it's the number of pairs of people in the group. And in fact, the number of ways of choosing two people out of 23 is about 253, right? There are a lot of ways that people can be paired. And so, if you like this 253, there are a lot of chances for pairs, and every one of them, you know, has, has chance 1 in, 1 in 365. I mean, the chance that you and I have the same birthday is at least roughly 1 in 365. And uh, um, so the, 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 the reason is this hidden multiplicity of, of possibilities. I'm not going to say it again, but let me say it now. In fact, I've assumed that birthdays are equally likely to occur throughout the year. That's not right. Um, many more people are born on weekdays than on weekends. Uh, it's about 
20% fewer on weekends, and that's because doctors don't like to work on weekends, and 20% 20, 20 of laborers are induced, and, and, and so forth. Uh, um, but that only makes the odds better. That is, if everybody was born on the same day, with two people, right? So it, it, I'm, I'm analyzing 23 people is the worst case scenario. That is, with everybody uh, equally likely, that, that makes the chance of a match um, uh, as small as possible. Now, what I want to do is take this simple image and try to develop it as, into a tool. So let me, let me try going with that a little bit. Um, you can see all of this. It's just to remind me. I'll get nervous. Um, uh, so the first thing is, when I talked about birthdays, that was 365 categories. Okay? Here's another example. I think that second hands on watches are useless. Okay? So I think that if I said, everybody who has a second hand on their watch, look now, um, our second hands are all randomly distributed with respect to anybody else. So you can ask, how many people do we need in a group to have even odds that if I said, look now, two of them would have the same, their, their, their second hands on their watches on the same second. And that would be an example of a problem with 60 categories. So in general, if we had a problem with C categories, C would be 60 for the watch problem and 365 for the birthday problem. How many people do we need in the group to have even odds of having two of them match? And the answer to very good approximation is 1.2 times the square root of C. And for example, if C is 365, 1.2 times the square root of 65, 365 is 23 for practical purposes. And, and if you try the the, the, the watch problem, I don't know, can I, can I do it? Uh, did I, I didn't write it down in the margin of my, um, of my notebook. What is it? Between nine and ten. Okay, thank you. Um, so this is a useful rule of thumb for that tiny variant. Just to give you an example, I have a friend, a, a cognitive psychologist named Barbara Tversky, who came home one time from watching a movie, and she said, you know, the, the last four numbers on the bomb that James Bond was diffusing were the four numbers of my Israeli bank account. What are the odds of that, Mr. Wise Guy? <laughs> well, says I, <laughs> four numbers, they could be from 0000 to 9999, that's 10,000 possibilities. How many sets of four numbers do you have to know so that you have even odds that two of them, you know, are, are equal? We all know lots of sets of four numbers, you know, the social security numbers, front and back, various telephone numbers, and so forth. Well, if C is 10,000, 1.2 times the square root of 10,000 is 120. So it's even odds that if you have 120 numbers that you have in your address book, that two of them match to four digits just in that way. Um, if you, now, it's important for me to say that this is just, this 1.2 times the square root of C is just so that you have even odds of having a match. Actually, if you were going to do this for a class or for a group of friends, you know, when it doesn't work, it sort of stinks, right? <laughs> and um, so you might want to have a better chance of having it work. And so if you want a 95% chance of having it work, um, you need to multiply by 1.6. So 1.6 times square root of C for 95%. And so that makes 31 people for the birthday problem and 160 people for the four, four, four digits. So 
I'm starting to bend this little mathematical model to try to make it do something for a living. Um, let me now wiggle it in another way. Um, multiple matches. That is, suppose you had a big group of people, like this group. Um, there are lots of birthday matches here, I promise you. Okay. Do we have a triple? Well, we could find out. Could we have four people? How many people do you need to have in a group to have even odds of having K people in the group with the same birthday? Say three people with the same birthday. Well, the first thing to say is it, it's not for children again. The birthday problem is an easy problem to understand and do the math of, but if you start to think about triples, it's already, it's not so simple. Um, first, let me tell you the answer uh, and then develop it a little bit. So when K is two, we need 23 people in a group. When K is three, we need 88. For four people, 187. So probably there are four people in this group with the same birthday. It's pretty good odds. Are there 300 people? No, in this audience, I don't think so. But uh, anyway, with 10, with 1,000, with 11, let's say 1,200 people, it's even odds that you have 10 in the group with the same birthday. And if you think about it, you can actually make eerie predictions about groups that you know nothing about. You know, I mean, I can tell that there are six pairs of birthdays, one triple, and no quadruples, and things like that. And now, a general version, that is the 1.2 times the square root of C, this is the numbers for 365, is given by this formula. Let me try to parse it for you. Um, this asks the question, suppose you want to have chance, you, you want to have chance, probability P, of having, of having k people uh, with, with the same category when there are c categories. So there are three parameters in this formula. How many people do you have to have in a group if you're doing a c category problem? You want to have chance p of, of being right. p might be 95% or p might be 50%. And you want k of them to have the same birthday. To good approximation, the number is given by this charmer here. Okay, so let me give you an example. I have a friend who said, you know, my birthday, my daughter's birthday, and my husband's birthday are all on the same day of the month. What are the odds of that, Mr. Wise Guy? <laughs> well, says I, <laughs> uh, 30 categories, about. Um, how many? Three triple match. I can, you know, take 50%. I can plug into this formula, and if you plug in, you get that with 16 people, if you know the birthdays of 16 people, the exact birthdays, day of the month, uh, it's even odds that three are born on the same day of the month. It's not so surprising at all, even though, you know, if it happens to you, it seems pretty surprising. So that's an example of, again, we're developing this tool. One or two more little variations, and then I'll abstract. <laughs> um, there's a notion of close birthdays. Suppose you're in a smaller group, and you want to know well, okay, I'm not going to have with a small group two people exactly bang on, but say within a day. How does that change things? Again, it's not so easy to figure out. Here are the answers. Um, with 14 people in a group, it's even odds that two of them have their birthday within a day. With seven people in a group, it's even odds that two of them have their birthday within a week. So you can try that at dinner sometime. Seven people around the table, it's even odds that two of them have their birthday on the same within a week. Of, of each other. Um, one more variant. 
which is one approach to the um, the uh, airplane paradox, which is, you know, you're sitting next to somebody in an airplane and you start talking and you find you have something in common. You know, your fathers are both named George or they both grew up in, you both grew up in some town or, you know, hey, you know, I, anyway, uh, that seems to happen. Now, the point I want to make at, uh, of it is the following. There are many possible matches you could have during a conversation. Might be that you have the same name, might be that you both pick the same lottery number or, you know, study the same subject or lots of other things. Um, I want to try to look at a problem in which there are k categories. The first one has c1 possibilities, the second one has c2 possibilities, and the kth one has ck possibilities, so they're all different. This is the number in order to have n, to have even odds that you get a match at least in one category. And, uh, so, not so easy to parse that formula. It's the, it's the square root of the harmonic mean. Well, right. Anyway, let's try an example. Um, with birthdays, I, I took three categories. So birthdays, I said 23 people. Lottery numbers, suppose you just, you picked a number between one and a thousand. And name, and I took there to be 500 names in active use. You can make your own number up if you don't like that. That's just to try to help you think about it. Um, well, for birthdays, we know we need 23 people. For lotteries, we would need 38 people, and with 500 names, we would need 27 people to have even odds of a match. If I say even odds of a match on either this or this, it goes down to 20, and for a match on at least one of these categories, it goes down to 16. With a truly large number of categories possible, as there are in a conversation, it's a very good chance you'll find a match someplace. And then, if you go try to undo it, well, it can be hard to undo. Um, so those are some variants, little calculational variants of the birthday problem. Let me try to abstract as best I can. I'm, I'm not going to, but remember I talked about coincidence. Events seem unusually close together in some essential aspects, yet have no apparent causal connection. Well, to try to um, make some general picture of that, at least the way I picture it for myself, I suppose that we have something which is vaguely called a perceptual space. I wish I could say more carefully what that is. I can't really. Um, and events occur in our field of consciousness which are we become aware of. And um, suppose that there was some notion of distance when are two events close together. You can then ask the question if points are dropped down in this perceptual space in any which way so that we encounter them, uh, how likely is it that we'll find at least two close enough together to go whoopee? And the machine I've built, which I'm not trying, to, I'm not going to try to explain in this generality, but we built it in this generality, is quite capable of giving reasonable answers to this kind of question. And, and I've just shown you some special cases of it. So that's, a, that's a, an example of a mathematical tool that's one of the, my off-the-shelf tool, off tools that I use all the time. The next thing I want to do uh, is to um, uh, change gears and to uh, uh, tell you, actually, a story. Uh, it's, it's, it's one, it's a little long, but it uh, has a lot of points in it. So, um, 
So this is a story about looking behind what you read in the papers, as it were, as I'll try to explain. That is, if you, God, on the plane coming here, there was a woman next to me reading the star. I mean, there are some stories, you know. Um, so, okay. This story starts as in the following way. I was a graduate student at Harvard, and the psychology department um, called Fred Mosteller and said, we have a really exciting young psychic that we're trying to investigate, and these were our mainstream psychologists. Would you like to come over and take a look? And Fred, knowing that I have training as a magician and interest in this kind of thing, said, I'm not going, you go. So I went over to William James Hall, this grand hall next to the statistics department, as it were. And you know, when you're riding up in the elevator, you don't know what's going to happen. A really unusual young psychic. What's that going to be about? Is it somebody going to be telling us about you know his deja vus, if that's an expression, or I don't know, lion hunting in Tibet or something? Um, well, I was relieved to find some of our most famous psychologists and this long-haired young man who wasn't called by his name, they only said his initials, BD. And scattered around the table were many decks of cards. I thought, well, maybe there'll be something to see. Okay, that sounds interesting. And just to give you a flavor of the kind of thing BD did, uh, he did many different kinds of things. Um, but here's an example. He had a red deck and a blue deck and said, shuffle a red deck, you shuffle a blue deck, I don't want to touch them. And I need two cards named, say, the Seven of Spades and the Ace of Hearts. So two people named two cards. And he was way away from the deck. So he said, put the cards on the table. And now start turning up the cards until either the, I've forgotten what I said, but say Seven of Spades, Ace of Hearts. I don't know if that's what I said. Anyway, until one of those two cards turns up. So cards were turned up, and the Ace of Hearts turned up. And at that point, he said, 14. And they counted down from where the Ace of Hearts was here, 14 cards, and there was the Seven of Spades. And, you know, it, it gave you a little jump when it, when it happened, because, you know, he wasn't doing anything. Or, and so now let me take a slightly skeptical look at that, uh, that, that trial. Um, You'll notice that he never said what he was going to do before he started. That is, various things could have happened. For example, when the top two cards were turned up, they could have been the Ace of Hearts and the Seven of Spades, or the Seven of Spades and the Ace of Hearts, or the two Ace of Hearts. That's good. Okay. Two Seven of Spades is good. Okay, that didn't happen. So he said 14. He didn't say, I'm going to say a number. You know, okay. He said 14. 14 cards were counted down, and again, you know, they could have been the other Ace of Hearts or the Seven of Spades, so there are some chances for a success there. Suppose that hadn't been, turn over the next card. Right? That's, again, 14 and the next card. Um, if you just take those as the possible outcomes, that is, count success for those and nothing else, the chance of having a successful outcome is about one in eight. It's not so surprising. And uh, his stuff seemed to work about one in eight. And <laughs> now you would think, based on experiments like that, that people would say, oh, go on. On the other hand, the fact that it didn't always work counted a lot to his credit. That is, people said, no, if it was a trick, you know, it would always work. You know, this guy is, you know, is the real, is the real thing. 
Um, now, it's important for me to tell you another aspect that I watched, that I saw. So I'm watching. There are a lot of things like this. Sometimes they work. Often they don't. At one point, I see him kind of look around, look at the bottom card, like that. Okay. And then he cuts the cards in half, making a step. And it's not he's not a sleight of hand guy, so the step is about a good two inches. Okay. And then he spreads the, the, the bottom card was the six of hearts. I remember it quite clearly. Um, he spreads the cards out on the table, and he gets kind of excited and says, I think something exciting is going to happen, and so did I. You know. Um, now, he says, okay, somebody pull a card out of the, of, of the pack. Just not all the way, just pull a card out. So somebody pulled a card out from about the middle, and I see him count the number of cards between the card that's pulled out and the card that he knows. And he knows that they're five cards apart. I mean, I can see five cards apart. Now, he, he backs way away from the deck, and he says, now, square the cards up, and give them a cut. You cut them, too. You give them a cut. And, and now, at the end of this, he's you know, way across the room, as if you know, he had no contact with the cards at all. And he said, um, you're thinking of a card. We need another card. Oh, say the six of hearts. So he names the card that was originally on the bottom. And give him another cut. Now, cutting doesn't mix cards. If two cards are five cards apart, they're always five cards apart, no matter how many times the deck is cut. Doesn't, doesn't help mix them up. Um, so now he says, I need a small number. Somebody said two. He said, I need another small number. <laughs> and, and finally he got five. And from way across the room, he said, now, now um, two cards were thought of. What were they? So the card the guy picked say, is the three of diamonds, and the card he spotted is the six of hearts, and a small number was thought of. Now, I okay, let's go through the cards one at a time until we come to one of those thought of cards. Feel the cards. There's the three of diamonds first. And then, what was the number thought of? Five. Count five cards. Turn over the next card, and it was the six of hearts. Okay. It had, again, an electric effect on people, combined with the other things. And... Um, now, you might think that from a performance of this type, which lasted for two hours or more, you know, the people would say, hmm. Uh, and that isn't what happened. Um, riding down in the elevator, I listened to the, to the discussion, and some people were suspicious. They said, you know, sometimes he touched the cards. I don't like that. And, but other people would counter, yeah, but there were many times he didn't touch the cards. He was way across the room. <laughs> Or, and there were many times in which probability took its, its, its due. Okay, and other people said, yeah, but it didn't always work. And some people said, yeah, but there were those times when he got flashes and it was working. And, and of course, those were the times when he did touch the card. So this confabulation of methods um, where the weak points of one cancel out the, sorry, the strong points of one cancel out the weak points of another, um, I'll come back to. I call it the bundle of sticks uh, uh, phenomena. And lest you think that they weren't impressed, science reported about a month later that Harvard gave him $20,000 to explore the nature of his own psychic abilities. <laughs> okay. Um, so I got interested in this BD, and I, <laughs> I went and looked, looked up stuff. It turned out just before he'd been at Harvard, he'd been down at Ryan's lab in Durham. And... If you look in the Journal of Parapsychology, which is one of the standard American journals, there are three papers on an amazing series of experiments with the psychic BD. 
And if you read them, they're something like reports of the times the trick worked without mentioning the other eight that it didn't work. And reports as if tricks that I saw him do with sleight of hand as if they were done with the cards in the experimenter's control. And, and you just, it was a wildly misleading account if it was at all similar to what I saw. Now, I wasn't there, and, and that is a problem. On the other hand, I have good reason to think that it was bad reporting of poor sleight of hand. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, they were published in that, in, that, in that journal, along with a number of experiments that, that claimed were done under, under tough conditions. Um, now, I told Fred Mosteller, uh, you know, what I saw, and he must have told some of the psychologists, and Bob Rosenthal, um, uh, I saw a couple of days later, and, and he said, so I understand you think our boy does sleight of hand. And I, I don't think he did sleight of hand. He, he did sleight of hand. That's different. Right? I, you know, okay. And Bob looks me in the eye, and I can't reproduce the tone. I'll do the best I can. He says... Nobody ever said he didn't ha do sleight of hand. We just think he has psychic ability. <laughs> now, that's a tough one. Every time I've seen Uri Geller, the Israeli psychic, he's cheated like a kid gone wild in a candy store left alone. On the other hand, it could be that the times I didn't see him, it was all legitimate. <laughs> you know, it is, it, is hard to, it is hard to know for sure. Um, there are some follow-ups on this, and I'll just tell you two. Um, let's see, what's one follow-up? Um, John Beloff, at the time, was president of three of the Association of Psychical Students, people who study parapsychology, uh, was asked to list the five experiments that he thought any skeptic would be convinced by. That is, these were things that even if you say, oh, I don't know, these are things you know, there has to be something to it. Number one on his list are the experiments with BD. Now, it's not as if I've told the story that I just told you only to you. I published it in science. Okay? So, it's well known that BD did sleight of hand. There's no discussion of that. It's just, these are the experiments which anybody would be convinced by. Well, I'm sorry. You know, I'm not convinced. Secondly, VD uh, keeps going. Uh, um, last I heard, um, he was a judge in South Dakota. <laughs> and um, I'm not making this up. And, and um, I got a call about a year ago from a group in the psychology department at University of Chicago who were about to embark on a series of experiments with a truly amazing middle-aged psychic and, and that, that was BD. And somebody told them, well, maybe you should be careful, call this guy Diaconus. And I think I headed them off at the pass. At least I said, you should have somebody who knows about magic uh, um, present. So that, those are, that's an example. It's just a story. Let me abstract a little bit from it and now. Here are some lessons that I learned from BD. One is, there's this problem of multiplicity. Um, if somebody doesn't tell you what's going to happen before it happens, that is, what counts as close, what counts as a coincidence, the odds of a miracle occurring go way up. Okay, that's just, 
the way it is. You know, I met somebody at the Great Wall of China. Yeah, but you could have met them at the cafe in Germany or on the plane or on the... And if you don't specify, it's very, very hard to calculate the odds or to parse it for yourself. A second problem, which unfortunately is endemic in dealing with this kind of problem, is subject cheating. Somehow, for example, I've been an investigator on spoon-bending contests with Uri Geller. The claim is that kids by psychic powers could bend spoons. So you go and you watch, and there are these innocent little seven to ten-year-olds, each with their little spoon, angelically dressed and, you know, rubbing, and nothing could be further from you know, perfect, and all of a sudden a spoon bends, and, you, and then you start watching. And when one kid, something happens, another kid will hitch up his chair, and you know, down it goes. And they want to succeed, maybe it's involuntary, but meanwhile, it happens by, you know, real sleight of hand, not, not anything magical. So this field is unfortunately closely shuffled together with subject cheating. A third problem is this bundle of sticks idea, which, um, which is that it's a familiar ingredient in standard magic tricks. Magicians who do tricks often will repeat the trick using a completely different method, and the strong points of one method cancel out the weak points in another till it does look like a miracle. Well, somehow people think, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. I'm sorry, from five terrible experiments, you can't conclude anything. Okay, I mean, so, especially if somebody's likely to have cheated on some of them. If you want to read more about this story, I wrote it all down, Statistical Problems in ESP Research. Uh, it's an article in Science. So let me finish up by trying to take you through what I call towards a rational theory. And really what I mean by this is it's a checklist that Fred Mosteller and I have compiled of what are the first things we think about when somebody tells us an amazing story and, and you know, maybe something truly amazing did happen. You want to keep your mind open and all of that. Um, okay, so the first thing I think about is hidden cause. Now, that has two parts to it. Of course, that's what we're trying to do in science. When Jocelyn Bell discovered pulsars, if that's what she discovered, you know, the, 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 there was a, a periodic signal that shouldn't have been in an electrical signal. And it could have been because of a faulty plug, but it could have also been because of some unsuspected physical force. We're always trying to study and see if there is some hidden cause that we don't know about. That's what science is about in a certain sense. And, and so hidden causes, of course, one of the main causes of coincidences. A second aspect of that is this problem of both subject cheating and the question of, is it true? That is, I get told a lot of amazing stories, and you wonder how true or how many of them. How much do people lie? And people lie in all kinds of different ways. Everybody likes to make a story sound better, um, or it could have happened to somebody else, or it could have happened 10 years ago, or it could have been something you read in the paper. And it's very hard to know how much people lie and to what degree people lie. And as far as I know, uh, there's no reasonable work on that problem. Anyway, it's a problem for me. Um, a second problem is this problem of multiple endpoints. You saw in the birthday problem analysis that I did um, how allowing matches in several different categories 
really increase the odds of a match. Similarly, in BD's case, uh, um, not specifying what a miracle was helped miracles occur. Another issue is the cost of close. Um, in the birthday problem, if you allow a match within a day, that really makes it a lot more likely that matches happen. In BD's case, for example, one time when the Queen of Hearts was supposed to come up, the Queen of Diamonds came up. And he said, I don't want to take credit for that. And he sort of rubbed his eyes and he said, I'm really having trouble seeing the suits. You know. Um, okay, so that is a cause of coincidences that we don't bill ourselves for the cost of close. Another example is what I call the law of truly large numbers. So simply put, the law of truly large numbers is this. If you have enough chances, any damn thing is likely to happen. So suppose we think that a miracle occurs if something is one in a million. Well, there are 250 million people in the United States. We should expect 250 miracles a day. It's amazing they're not all lined up, picketing, you know. Um, and as an example, um, the, the Times reported a few years ago that a woman had won a double lottery within a few months. She'd won a lottery and then she'd won another, and they reported innocently the number of one in a trillion uh, for the odds against that. And those are the odds in a certain math problem, but it has nothing to do with this woman and lottery tickets. Um, in fact, the woman repeatedly bought multiple lottery tickets um, in many different states, and if you do any kind of rough calculation, we predicted that the chance of another double lottery winner being reported, which is another problem, uh, was about 1 in 30 in the next four months. And we, Steve Samuels and actually made a bet with the Times reporter, and they lost, to, to be honest. It happened six months after they made the bet, not four months. But um, uh, there are lots of people buying lottery tickets, and the chance that somebody has something happen uh, is pretty good. It's a famous paradox in probability. I call it the great of bla blade of grass problem. If I shut my eyes and walk outside, I'll probably bump into the railing, but if I get down to a field of grass and go around like this and put my finger down, I'll hit some blade of grass. On the other hand, the chance that I hit that exact blade of grass is one in a million, or however many blades of grass there are around me. Well, that paradox is a real problem. And the point is, if it happens to somebody, they remember forever. And they might even come and ask me, you know, the one in a million, that happens 250 times a day in the States, uh, somebody might come and say, look, this miracle happened. What are the odds of that, Mr. Wise Guy? And it's very hard to deal with that problem because it's very hard to know the pool that we're swimming in. So those are some causes. What I want now is to say that there is a chance, there is a sense in which I at least agree with Jung. There is something to synchronicity that's beyond cause and beyond chance. Okay? And I'll be brave. I'll call it a new synchronicity. And my cover-up is this. Coincidences happen in the minds of observers. And in fact, the thing that there is to explain and that's interesting is why we find coincidences as moving and shocking as we do, when very often the probability calculations show that they're not so surprising. And I can't make science out of what I'm about to say, but 
I can't make, we can't make science out of lots of things that seem true. Um, it strikes me that we're hardwired to overreact to coincidences. They please us, they excite us, they make us feel weird. Picture primitive man in the jungle, and there's something in the bushes that looks like stripes. Well, maybe you just better get out of there and not try to figure out if it's a tiger or not. Okay. So that notion that where there are patterns, there's structure, there's something that you don't know about, might very well be hardwired in us. And as I say, that's a very hard idea to make science out of, but it is true that by any rational means, we wildly overreact to, to coincidences. So the real juice in the study of this subject would be psychology. And I haven't talked about, for example, memory failure. Um, for example, um, people have lots of dreams during a night. Many people have lots of dreams during a night. And if anything happens the next day with jibes with any part of that dream, you know, something weird happened. What's that about? And you have no idea what the denominator is in your uh, in your problem. Another problem is selective attention. Um, I'm interested in magic, and I promise you, if I'm in a room and there's magic in a poster or any kind of an image like that, I notice it. And I don't do it consciously, or there's another phenomena, which is the party phenomena. You're at a party, it's so loud you can hardly hear anybody, but if somebody says your name across the room, you know, what's that? We're all parsing lots and lots of things that we're not aware of all the time. And that, again, is very hard to quantify and a real good causer of coincidences. You know, when something happens from that sea of things, we remember that, and that's amazing, and, and have no idea of out of how much matching the mind was doing we have to charge ourselves for. I've talked a little bit about the bundle of sticks um, phenomena. It's actually a very important idea. It's Cardinal Newman's principle, John Henry Newman, uh, a great theologian and philosopher, uh, um, wrote a wonderful book, uh, which is called The Nature of Ascent. Ascent is in coming to understand or see. Um, and uh, he was trying to convince people that God exists. And the, the, the thesis was that there are many things that we knew nothing about that we come to believe quite fervently. The example he used was England being an island. He said, when I was born, I had no idea what an island was, and yet I now believe England is an island as surely as I believe anything. How did I come to believe it? You know, I haven't gone all around it. There were no planes at the time he was writing, and he's very eloquent and very interesting. One of his arguments was the wrong version of the bundle of sticks uh, uh, argument, which is that ceteris paribus, different sources of different sources of, of evidence are stronger than more of the same. And that's like the argument from many broken sticks, you get something solid. Well, it's a fuzzy argument and, and one to be careful of. I made some nice math that I'm not going to try to tell you about, about here. Um, Fred Mosteller calls the talk I've just given you a nye-nye talk. He says, yeah, it's not so surprising. For me, um, the things that I find surprising are hidden in this talk. I find it wonderful that 
the same small set of ideas, the Poisson distribution, that work in both radioactivity and trying to understand coincidences. That the mathematics of the birthday problem works so generally to make sense out of so many things that, that we, we find surprising. That's a, that's a coincidence of another sort. I hope I've given you a look at my side of the story, and thank you very much for coming out. Is, would be happy to entertain a few questions from the audience if there's some. Or complaints, Any that's okay too. <laughs> I'll, I'll come up and I'll try to help. Sir. Here. research. It's a complicated question. And the question is, am I familiar with the Princeton, what was the name of it? Being Bob John's operation? Yes? Is that enough of an answer? Um, it's, um, I, I asked some friends of mine who were in the skeptics business, uh, what was I going to do if I was asked that question? Uh, uh, what about, what about the, the, Operation that is, is, is quite a large operation in this area. And I don't think very much of it, uh, to be honest. And, and, uh, I don't, I don't, for me, uh, in, in the way that they interact with the outside world and the attempts to replicate their findings have, have, have all been scandalous. Uh, and I, I don't think very much of it. On the other hand, I haven't spent the time and actually gone and tried to make any sense out of what they're doing, so I, I, I should be careful about that. But people that have uh, are quite skeptical, and as one should be. Uh, on the other hand, I commend their bravery and, and trying to explore new areas, and, and uh, it's not for me, and I don't think it should be for you either. <laughs> I'll try to leave it at that. <laughs> yes? I'll repeat the question. Go ahead.
Uh, we've had trouble writing about it. Uh, I, I mean, in particular for me, the kind of thing you said, you know, that there's something deep within us that makes us react and, and is, is very hard for a mathematician to come to terms with. A lot of the tools that one might need would be tools of psychology or of tools that are beyond what we have. I mean, we don't understand what moves us and, and what the emotions find moving very well. Um, I'm doing the best we can. I'm glad you think it's important. Uh, yes, sir. cancer cluster and a, and a lawsuit that develops over that. Uh, I don't know if you've read the book or not, nope. uh, well, but very widely known and well-received book. But it's interesting that there's no discussion in the entire book of basically the statistical underpinnings of do these different kinds of six or eight people who have different kinds of leukemia actually have any statistical evidence. But of course, the people in the book who are the victims of Leukemia all feel very strongly that they've been wronged by this chemical company. I don't know quite what my question is, since you haven't well, read the book. Well, so the, 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 the point that David, I believe, is making, uh, hi David, uh, is, uh, is that the tools for thinking critically about coincidences that I was talking about, for example, this question of the scan statistic, are crucial in evaluating the problem like if a rare disease occurs close in space and close in time, an epidemic could be brewing, or it could just be we're looking for lots and lots of different things all the time. We're going to notice anything that happens like that. What are the odds that if things just pop up, as they do, that it's a coincidence? And in fact, the mathematics for studying the scan statistic was done for studying cancer clusters, indeed. So there are lots of tools, and it's a very good, it's a very good suggestion. Again, you know, it is important, that's why statisticians study the mathematics of coincidences to try to deal with this. On the other hand, you can all imagine that if a coincidence happens to you, well, hell with probability. <laughs> You know, I mean, and especially if there's a good chance of scoring in a big lawsuit. No, I don't want to make light of that because it could very well that chemical spills do occur and chemical companies are ruthless in trying to suppress, you know, any, any kind of talk like that. And it's a very, very complex issue. Is the book, book a good book? So, a good book review, yes. <laughs> you, yeah. Um, there was an experiment, I guess, that I'd heard about, and I don't really know the details, where two, um, two sets of electrons, I believe, were sent off in different directions by sure. a matter of miles, and then were, one of them was spurred by something, and the other one reacted in exactly the same way. And I, I, don't, know the, I don't know the details, so I don't know if right. they were able to reproduce Testing for this. Bell's inequality. Is it, um, that's all legitimate, that? you know, terrific science, and, and tr we're trying to, un people are trying to understand the phenomena of hidden variables in quantum mechanics. And we, we, it's just very hard for somebody who does, didn't grow up on quantum mechanics to not think that, that there, there's some hidden mechanism that causes this particle to know about that particle. And they have done very, very careful tests, and many of them by now, 
it's an absolutely fascinating phenomena, and quantum mechanics is as close to magic as you want to come. i mean, it really is amazing and wonderful. and i think it's ah it's a great thing to get your mind around, instead of can uri geller really bend spoons? no, he can't, and that stuff is terrific, is what i have to say. so is there enough is there enough evidence there to have a statistical basis for belief in it? it's more than statistical basis. i think by now it you know, i'm not an expert in it, but i have friends who are abner shimoni, for example, a wonderful philosopher who has worked his whole life on on this problem. and people feel pretty convinced that that the the impossibility of of hidden variables has not only been proved in the mathematical models that govern quantum mechanics, but has also been verified in enough real experiments to think that this gut reaction we have that something must be causing it that we are going to find is wrong. It's pretty subtle, and I'm not the right guy to, but I believe it, and I'm pretty tough cookie. So. Alright. One more in the back. Yes, sir. He's being deceitful, or that he really didn't understand the probability, or like the math behind it. Oh. So the question is, was BD being deceitful, or did, could it have just been by chance? Now, it's a real complicated question. If somebody, let me, let me try, I, I'm, I'm going to take another example just for a minute, or maybe you want to clarify? Go ahead. Yeah, I just meant in the second case, do you think he actually believed in his own mind that he was a psychic? Ah, so probably, probably BD is convinced that he has psychic abilities. But just to tell a story, I have a friend, he's dead now, Stanley Jacks, who was a stage mind reader. And so he would get people to write little their questions, and then they would be in a bowl, and he would pick one up and hold it to his forehead and tell what they were thinking about. Okay? And without explaining anything in detail, in fact, he knows what you wrote on the paper some way. On the other hand, he said to me, you know, there's something strange that happens when you're in front of a bunch of people who believe and are enthusiastic. Vibrations come in that there's no way to explain, and it's quite spooky. And he said, you know, I'll start telling somebody, there's no way I could know. And for me, he had convinced himself that he had psychic ability. Now, try to think about it. He knows that written on the piece of paper is, will my dog live? So he starts. You've been concentrating. You, you love animals, don't you? <laughs> and he'll go on and sort of play hot and cold with the person. Now, if somebody's really with you, when you say something that's right, they give you some feedback. If it's wrong, you'll get a no. And knowing the answer, you can really go quite a long way and kind of convince yourself that there's something spooky going on. And so I've seen that happen hundreds and hundreds of times. I think bartenders feel that way, too. Um, that is, you know, you do really get to think you have a superior power um, some, some way or other. So, a very good example is Ted Sirios, who was a psychic I had a lot of experience with, uh, who made psychic photographs appear. I haven't told the story here, but um, he unquestionably cheated many times. On the other hand, the people who investigated him, I remember this guy telling, looking at me with anger in his face, Julie Eisenbud, uh, a psychologist, uh, psychotherapist in, in Denver, you know, if he's only genuine 10% of the time, isn't that enough for you? I think, and, and they also said when I caught him, you made him do it. Right? We've seen him do it hundreds of times when there was no possibility of any cheating. 
because you're here putting the pressure on with all your scrutiny, he felt he had to perform. So people make up stories in their own mind and discount that. So I'm quite sure, there's me being amateur psychologist, but it's my belief at any rate, that BD believes he has psychic phenomena and just helps stuff along, you know, just occasionally. That's my best, my best guess at it. The, the evening is late, and I will thank you all for coming. Thank you very much.